Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at adces24.org. Hello, and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, conversations with the diabetes care team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm Kirsten Yale, Research Manager at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. If you enjoy the huddle, please take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. April is National Minority Health Month and a great time to review the barriers to healthcare facing your community. Today, we're discussing how one diabetes prevention program in Dallas has effectively utilized community resources to reach at-risk individuals in African-American and Latino populations. Community activists Francis Rizzo and Jennifer Marks share their tips and strategies you can use in your practice. Jennifer and Francis, welcome to the huddle. Hi there. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Well, we are so happy to have you here, especially because, you know, you guys have shared the best stories with me from your experiences working with the local communities in Dallas. And honestly, I learned the best through stories and I've learned so much from you guys through these conversations. So I'm really excited that you're here to share with our audience here on The Huddle. But before we jump into that, I would love for you guys to maybe introduce yourself to our listeners so they have a little background about you guys. Okay. Well, I'll go ahead and get started. I'm a lifetime activist. As a native Dallasite, I've been involved in the community in so many different ways as I've grown. I also have graduate studies in gerontology, but I've been a lifestyle coach having completed the year-long diabetes prevention program in both English and Spanish cohorts. And I'm also a master trainer in the self-management programs. And Jennifer? So my name is Jennifer Marks, and my background has been in social services for the last 15 years. I spend most of my career in Southern California working with the Department of Social Services and moved into the Dallas area about four years ago. I am the manager for evidence-based programs here with the Dallas Area Agency on Aging, and I am also trained as a master trainer in chronic disease self-management, diabetes self-management, and I also manage the diabetes prevention programs with our agency. So you guys, especially together as a pair, you bring just a ton of experience to this area and to Dallas. So the Dallas area is lucky to have you. So you guys both know that April is National Minority Health Month. And I think this is always like the best time of the year to just, I think, remind ourselves and everybody how important it is to reduce barriers to care, to really reach these high-risk populations. And your program has been so effective at reaching the African-American and Hispanic communities that are really facing these hurdles to care. So I'd love for you to tell us about your programs and, and where you're located. Sure. So the Dallas Area Agency on Aging is within the Community Council, which is our umbrella organization. We are really at the center of how organizations work and learn how to serve people and really build thriving communities. Our organization focuses 
a lot on poverty alleviation and really just helping the community members to become self-sufficient in many different ways. Our programs that we have within our department are evidence-based programs. Um, We do serve Dallas County, and we are focused on older adults within our particular department. That's age 60 and over. Um, However, we do serve um, other adults age 18 and over with various programs. And then I'll kind of let Francis talk a little bit about specifically the diabetes prevention program. Very good. Well, thank you so much. I take diabetes very personally. So I think that really defines my uh, dedication to reaching out. The diabetes prevention program, of course, is offered to people 18 and older, but we of course, target African-Americans and the Latino populations because they have higher risk factors for diabetes. And being a Latina myself uh, makes it easier, certainly, and being bilingual makes all the difference in the world. Particularly low-income to middle-income populations uh, that are at higher risk because they tend to have less health care. And we know that a great number of our populations are not aware that they're at risk, but they do know that diabetes is present in their family members, and they tend to still believe that it will not happen to them. So it's kind of a disconnect. So when you are offered the opportunity to present or to visit with a group of people in any given setting, you can say, you know, a lot of people just don't know until their doctors tell them, and then they get scared. But education in general does not necessarily bring it home to them enough to where it gets them to take action for themselves. So targeting these groups where they're already gathering is only a starting point. You've got to be able to get in the door before you can get their ear. So the neighborhoods and the recreation centers, and one of the challenges, of course, is that currently during COVID protocols, we've gone to drive-through lunch lines. Some of the senior activity centers have their members drive up to pick up their lunches because they cannot gather in person. Now, of course, they have smaller group gatherings at churches and at food distribution events, but if you particularly volunteer to go help, you are able to distribute information. I'm not sure how far you'd want me to give you examples, but reaching out to the community is not an easy thing to do. You have to do it when they're around not just send out a PSA or a flyer and expect them to call you. You have to be present and you have to be consistent. They have to see your face and hear your voice over and over again. So that's what it really takes. If you want something specific, let me know. Right. Well, we'd love some examples, Francis. And and it sounds like it's a little bit of familiarity and it's a little bit of resilience, I think you said, and, um, and persistence. Uh, so, yes, I would love, I mean, you, you started it off there for us, but any stories that you can share, I know you've shared some with me. So I would love for you to share some of those stories and they might inspire people that are listening. Okay. Well, I'll tell you first about the group that we had at WellMed Senior Activity Center. And I had a class of 40 people. There were several gentlemen in the group, uh, but the majority were women, and they were mostly African-American except for two Latinos that were in the group. They were so enthusiastic that they got to where they wanted to bring healthy snacks at every session. So it got to where we talk about what were the snacks and how were they prepared. And I would have to stop them. They were were having so much fun (laughs) 
uh, conversing with every question I would ask them that I would have to say, we only have an hour. Okay, let's get back on track. (laughs) Okay. But they were so excited. They all wanted individual pictures when we gave them their certificates. But these are people, I have to explain, that were already members of the Senior Activity Center. So they were already accepting and open to uh, health education. So we were very, very lucky there that we had so many people sign up. What we did there since COVID and we are starting our classes again, they're going to be virtual, of course, is that they were the first ones I went to distribute flyers to the people driving up to get their lunches. And our very first sign up for our English DPP session starting next week was from there. I think we have two people from there that responded immediately to the flyers. Another example was my Spanish language class at a church, and they were all women. And they got to where they wanted to bring snacks, but I told them that if they were going to bring snacks, they needed to be healthy snacks, and then they would explain how they had made their snacks healthy. So that became a really beginning talking point, and they were all laughing and enjoying. And you know, when you're having fun, you're going to learn more. (laughs) Okay, so it, it was wonderful to have them that way. I believe I had 16 or 17 people that finished the course there. The one special thing about that church is that they celebrate annually, of course, not since COVID, but annually, and I'm sure they'll go back to doing it after the protocols are lifted. They have an international festival day because the parishioners there uh, are such a diverse group. But the Latino Spanish speaking group is is a significant group. They wanted two tables. So they had one table for their cultural artifacts. They had me bring my guitar that I bought in Mexico. And, you know, you have the traditional pots, the clay pots and the different instruments and cooking utensils and like that. But the other table was their food table. And I think we were the only ones with two tables. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) They they brought traditional uh, foods, Latino dishes. And they they were not just Mexican, but they're traditional kind of in different Latin American countries. So it was very good. I'll give you one example. Uh, You know what nopales are? They're cactus. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Okay, nopales. I got it. Well, okay, nopal. Well, nopal is singular. Nopales is plural. Okay. So a nopal cactus is, of course, you know, you take the uh, scrape thorns off and you, you scrape them, you clean them, and then you prepare them however it is you're going to prepare them. But they're very nutritious. They have a lot of fiber. Even the American Cancer Society has them on a, a poster that they push for cruciferous vegetables. But anyway... They're very popular in Latin American countries because they're very readily available everywhere. One of the ladies prepared it like you would prepare a pasta salad, but she used a cactus. And of course, each of these dishes, they put a little placard in front to show how they had been made more healthy rather than the traditional way of cooking them. And that cactus salad was so popular. We had four or five people from the rest of the gymnasium where we were come back over and over again to see if they we still had some so that they could have some more. They had like three or four other dishes. So I just don't remember all the recipes, but they were very, I think we were the most popular table in the gymnasium. And I know they want to do it again, but 
am going back to the church to ask some of the people that did not want to take the Spanish class because they didn't feel as comfortable. I had people sign up for the English one. So now I'm going to go back and call those folks to sign up for our English class starting next week. So those were my successful ones. Do you think we can get that cactus recipe and put it in our show notes? Most assuredly. Wonderful. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. But you had a couple more stories. I interrupted. Those were the two most exciting ones. I have a funny one. Uh, This was another totally different church and that was in Spanish. There was a lady, a married lady, and she was very much a homemaker. Her kids were grown and gone. So she was taking her grandchildren to school and picking them up. And that was about the only thing she did other than going out on the weekends with her husband. She was overweight. And she just had a big challenge trying to figure out what to do is for physical activity. And so I asked her, we went through the problem solving steps and asked her if she wanted ideas from the rest of the group. And she says, yeah, maybe, maybe that'll help. And so they threw out all kinds of ideas. Some of them were funny. Some of them were not. But she finally landed on, because she did not even want to go outside. She was not an outdoor person. She wanted to stay inside her house. Uh, So she landed on walking around her dining room table for five minutes at a time until she could build up to doing something else. Within three sessions after she started walking around her dining room table, she said, I did not lose any weight, but my waist is smaller and I can wear a pair of boots that I have not been able to wear in two years Because they zip up, that means my ankles have shrunken. Oh. And and everybody just congratulated her, but she laughed. She says, I'm not losing any weight. I haven't lost any pounds, but my waist is smaller and I can wear my boots. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we have a few stories like that. Those are the most entertaining ones. Well, you know, it just reminds me, Francis, that you have these groups that meet and they and when they met in person, it sounded like there was this real camaraderie. How are you doing this when you're moving to a virtual setting? Well, we have one virtual setting right now and they are engaged. There are a couple of the ladies that when they come on, uh, they are actually sitting on the exercise bikes. Okay. And so that one uh, is in the second six months already. So we don't have a whole lot longer to go, but they are totally engaged. And most of them are saying they are at 150 minutes of activity a week or hovering right around it, just below it or just above it. But most of them are doing more than that because they either have exercise bikes or if they're not on their bikes, uh, they alternate days. They go outside to walk. Or they go to the mall and walk. So by the time you get into the core maintenance, they're either totally with you or they're they're not there. Yeah, yeah. It is more challenging. I'll say it is more challenging. But I'm hoping that these two classes that we're starting the remainder of this month, uh, I will have become more proficient and have more things to put on the screen. I'm sure you will. And then we'll have you back here to tell us more stories too. Um, I wanted to really quickly, just because we don't have like a a ton of time on these podcasts, I wanted to turn real quickly to Jennifer and kind of sparked by something that you said, Francis, where how it sometimes is difficult for people to take action. And 
I know, Jennifer, you know, you've had some experience with targeting these high-risk zip codes and actually reaching people. And that in partnership with Francis, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So what we always find is that if we can build trust in our community, that allows us to really reach people where they are. And and Francis did touch about that a little bit earlier. But, you know, our organization is an 80-year-old organization. We're one of the largest nonprofits in the Dallas area. And so we've been around for quite a while. So when we go out into the community, into these rec centers and libraries, and even when we were going to events prior to COVID, when we show up, people tend to recognize who we are, and they recognize our agency, and that creates trust in the community. So the good thing about creating that trust is that when you have something to offer the community, they tend to listen. Also, just really utilizing that word of mouth and hosting quality programs. When our facilitators build the rapport with the participants and and they build that camaraderie, whether it be face-to-face or virtual, it creates a connection with the community. And so when we keep that connection, it is easier for us to go straight, you know, back into the community and recruit participants from wherever they're gathering, whether that be churches, you know, again, those libraries or recreation centers or wherever it is that they're gathering. We just really try to meet them where they are um, and make it easy and convenient for them to participate. You know, when we had COVID come about last year, we really had some barriers because we had to figure out how were we going to take programs that were normally taught face-to-face in these community-based locations, and how were we going to reach our participants now? But we were able to get creative and find ways to continue to reach participants. And again, I think it goes back to the fact that we've been in the community for so long. People were looking to us when they were finding themselves you know, isolated at home, they couldn't get out, there wasn't any activities for them to go to the senior centers were shut down, they were looking for things to do. And so it was good that we were able to change our programs into more of a virtual setting to where we were able to offer them some sort of education and then also provide them that camaraderie that they had been missing for so many months. Well, just thinking about what you started with, with trust, and then moving into the virtual programming, how have you maintained trust? And you, you talked about um, word of mouth and then camaraderie. Have you been able to continue that with the virtual programs? Yeah, we have. And I think, again, it just goes back to having quality facilitators and continuing to follow up with participants between sessions and really listening to participants that keeps them coming back that allows them to continue to know that they can trust you and you know that's really just how we do it we just keep an open line of communication between our facilitators and our participants and they do trust us and and they will continue to come to us for services because you know we've built that connection with them how far do you think that trust goes for retention well 
Um, glad you mentioned that because we are seeing higher retention rates um, since we've changed over into the virtual format. And that's with all of our programs, um, not just the diabetes prevention, but some of our other self-management and education programs as well. Um, we are seeing our retention rates go up. And, and again, I think part of it is because we have built a good amount of trust with the participants, but also um, I feel like the population that we serve are at a higher risk, not just for chronic diseases, but for other things, including COVID. And they're not gathering in places anymore. They're not going out. Um, a lot of the places they would usually go to are closed down. And so they really still want that connection. You know, all humans want to be connected and feel heard and understood. And I think that through these programs, not only are they getting education about, you know, how to manage certain conditions or prevent certain conditions, but they're also getting that human connection that a lot of them had been missing. So I think that some of it is because we do have quality facilitators, but another piece of it is, is because a lot of our participants have been isolated. They haven't been going out into the community. So it provides them a platform where they can still meet new people and they can have accountability partners and create friendships along the way. So um, that has definitely all helped um, the retention rates go up for sure. Well, you know, what's really cool just talking to both of you, what I've heard like a common theme throughout both of your stories and conversations here is that engagement and retention, that formula, it sounds like it's trust plus access. And usually when we talk to people, I hear people say, it's trust. And then I hear other people say, it's access. And it sounds like from you guys that you really have a nice balance between trust and access. And that might be what makes it work. Yeah, absolutely. And it is both. And I think you can't really have one without the other because if a participant trusts you enough to sign up for your program, but then the program is not running smoothly and there's no trust with the facilitator, there's no way to access the program because there are barriers like before COVID, you know, transportation was one of the biggest barriers that we faced with our programs, especially when we're thinking about communities that we serve that are possibly lower income. Maybe they don't have transportation services or they're relying on public transportation to get to these classes. And the access piece definitely does have to be there and you have to have both or you won't be able to have a successful program. Yeah. And Jennifer, you had talked about provider referrals earlier. Did you want to jump in and talk a little bit more about that in your work with Texas Women's University? Yeah, absolutely. So with our self-management programs, and we have a partnership with Texas Women's University and the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Coalition. And that partnership grew because we're always trying to understand what motivates individuals to enroll in classes beyond just the trust in the community and being out in the community? Are there other ways to reach participants that maybe they're not very social? Maybe they don't go to community events or they don't go into the libraries and the rec centers. How can we reach those participants? And how can we get the buy-in from the medical side of things in order for 
the doctors and physicians to really refer to community-based and self-management educational programs that essentially would help their clientele. But the thing is, we know our programs are evidence-based. We know they work, right? But everybody always wants to know, does it work in our area? Does this program work in Dallas? Or will this program work for my particular clientele? And so in order for us to be able to show that not only do these programs work nationally, they also work in our local area, um, we decided to partner with Texas Women's University and the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Coalition in order to educate graduate students at the graduate level before they go into the workforce. And we decided that, you know, we would start there because if we could educate students before they become doctors, before they become physicians and, you know, nurses and whatnot, then they'll know about our programs on the forefront. It won't be like trying to educate backwards. So we're really trying to educate the graduate students at that level We have been able to take that partnership and grow it into a referral source for newly graduated students who are just getting out into the workforce. They know about our programs because they were educated through the university on the self-management and the diabetes prevention programs. So now we get to the point where they've graduated, they're going into the workforce and they're taking that education with them. They're also taking the referral option with them as well. So when they're seeing patients later on, they are referring those patients back to our programs. So um, that partnership is uh, fairly new. We've been partnering with those two organizations for the last two years. And so we absolutely love working with them. and, And we know and we're very, very hopeful that that partnership will grow into something tremendous. And we'll really be able to take those outcomes and be able to prove that, yes, not only do these programs work nationally, but they do also work in our particular area with our particular community. You know, what's really cool about that story or that initiative is that's long-term thinking, right? Because you're educating students today and expecting them to really build this into their practice for the next 30, 40 years. And that doesn't seem to happen in our world any anymore. It seems like people are so set on the short term, like one year or five years from now, right? Right. And, and that's what we're hoping for. We're hoping that if physicians and medical staff, if they know about our programs and they know that they work in our area, that they will hang on to them and really use them as a resource because the community has a lot of needs, not just medical, but community-based needs as well, these social determinants of health. And there is only so much the medical world can do in a 30 or 40-minute office visit. They don't have the resources possibly or maybe the time to really educate on whatever care education that they need, you know, let's just say specifically diabetes care and education. They know that the person might need more education about the specific disease, but they don't necessarily have the time or the resources to provide it. So that's where community-based organizations like 
Dallas Area Agency on Aging can kind of bridge that gap between the office visit where they get diagnosed and the point in time where they realize that there are resources in the community that can educate them on how to manage that so that it doesn't become an issue later on so that they're not having to end up in the ER over and over again. And so I always think about it just as bridging the gap between what medical providers can give the community and what community-based organizations already have. What do you want to leave our listeners with? You know, what is your crystal ball or where do you see the future going or any big ideas for action that you want to leave our listeners with? And Francis, I'll start with you. Well, I have a little bit of broadcasting experience in my professional life. Uh, before I went into gerontology, I did Spanish radio and English TV and uh, talk shows. So I believe that if we move towards particularly the things we've learned during this uh, COVID protocols, that we need to engage the different language radio stations to reach the different language populations, particularly the Spanish ones. And it, of course, depends on your market where you can reach out. The directors of public service are always needing to provide information of community service in their outreach, in their listening audience outreach. It's just another avenue to get them to support you and back you up. You can never, ever let up on constant communication with community leaders, organizations, uh, leadership that have constituencies in your area, the churches, of course. There's just so many different entities where people, people that go to church, they're going to go to church, even if they're reduced attendance because of the protocol. People are going to continue listening to the radio. People listen to the radio while they're at work, okay? So there are different kinds of things that we need to be creative, and we just need to dedicate the time and energy to build and solidify those relationships with those contacts. The other thing that we need to understand and respect is that sometimes we're going to have to schedule these classes in the evening or on a Sunday after the last Mass, uh, or it, they're not always going to be during the day, during the business week, okay? So we have to go to them in their settings when they're available rather than they coming to us because that's not going to happen. I think you hit the nail on the head there with the marketing because that's something that this group, um, Diabetes Care and Education Specialists, really doesn't do um, so well for themselves. So I'm so glad that you brought that up and you left that lesson with us. And Jennifer... My crystal ball will just be that one day we have bridged the gap, you know, just as I was talking about before, and that the healthcare world and the medical world will understand and just remember that community-based organizations, we're here, our doors are open, we're fully flexible and available to help the community wherever we can and really understanding the value of our programs and how we can help the community to better manage their conditions. Well, and I'm so glad you're leaving us with that thought too. And that comes back again, you know, that partnership between the healthcare community and community organizations is that trust and access that we talked about earlier. We are all out of time. I wanted to say thank you both. Have a great afternoon. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. 
Today we heard from Francis Rizzo and Jennifer Marks on how they utilized community resources to reach at-risk populations. We learned about the importance of meeting potential attendees where they are in both community events and through speaking opportunities with local organizations. By focusing on high-risk zip codes and building trust and access in your program, you can increase attendance and provide support to those most vulnerable to chronic conditions. Make sure you consider what providers in your area need to refer to your program. Do they need more data on outcomes in their particular clientele? For more information on reducing disparities to care, visit diabeteseducator.org forward slash Minority Health Month. Membership at ADCES gives you access to the education, networking, and resources to improve your practice and optimize outcomes for your clients. Find out what ADCES can do for you at diabeteseducator.org forward slash join. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.